At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up. Like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor from Intelligence Squared. We have a special bonus episode for you today. It's an episode in partnership with IG, the world-leading online trading provider who give opportunities across thousands of financial markets. In this conversation, Joshua Mahoney, Senior Market Analyst at IG, speaks to Lindy Yu about the world after COVID-19 and how the pandemic has impacted markets and investing. If you want to find out more about IG and the world of investing after you listen, you can click on the link in our podcast description and go through to IG.com today. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast in partnership with IG. I'm Linda Yu, economist and broadcaster. I'm delighted to discuss the economy and markets after COVID-19 with our guest today. Joshua Mahoney is a senior markets analyst at online trading platform IG. He is a regular commentator on markets and the economy and has previously worked within Deutsche Bank and Barclays Capital Investment Banks. Welcome, Josh. So firstly, just tell us about your background and what do you do at IG? Hi, Linda. Yeah, so I mean, predominantly a big interest in economics. That's certainly what I studied at university and then moving into sort of big banks as I found my feet. But ultimately, I I found for someone that's very interested in economics, sometimes being in those sort of big structures of the of the corporate banks, and the investment banks can be quite difficult to find a job where you can actually sort of really express your interest across the board. And that's certainly something that, that I get with IG. And so, you know, what we do as analysts is we try to cover the the wide breadth of different markets that we offer. And because of the fact that IG offers so much, it means that you are able to look into all sorts of different types of markets and instruments and ways of trading and the psychology of trading and really put yourself in the feet of our clients. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into our job, but it makes it a a pretty interesting job because of that variety. Mm. I'm sure the pandemic has affected the job. So it'd be great to just hear about your personal experiences, maybe during the early days of the pandemic. How much of a challenge was it to adjust to remote working and analyzing the markets when there was so much uncertainty? Yeah, it's an interesting one. To some extent, we did already have some element of remote working. So that wasn't a huge shock to the system. In terms of what happened with the markets, I think I've actually grown very accustomed to the idea of there being significant volatility, uncertainty. You know, certainly when I've started in in this type of role in, in my previous company, I remember saying to my then boss, 
what's going to happen when all of this craziness runs out? We were talking about fiscal cliffs and debt ceilings. And basically, the answer is it never runs out. There's always something happening in the markets that makes it interesting to talk about. And this is just the latest example of that, quite frankly. So I think there's a lot more people that have seen their lifestyle and their working conditions uprooted to a, to a greater degree than myself. The working from home element on a permanent basis certainly makes it pretty interesting for any television appearances that we've got. Certainly my version of having the, the baby crawling in the background was having my, my greyhound in the background trying to lay on the sofa. But for the most part, it's just given me something else to sort of sink my teeth into. And I would say the one thing that I miss the most from my sort of prior workplace and actually being in the workplace is being able to be around my colleagues where you can talk to each other and, and work through ideas on why certain things are happening in the markets. Nowadays, it's all meeting up on Microsoft and the like and having online conversations, which certainly aren't necessarily as frequent as you would have when you're sitting next to someone. Josh, did the pandemic change not just what people were investing in, but also how they invest? Yeah, I would say that, that this is particularly interesting for me what's happened in the past year, because when I first started investing myself, it was when I left university and we had the, the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Now, invariably, when you see markets collapse, of course, the people that are in the market at the time holding uh, stocks uh, are obviously going to be licking their wounds. Um, but you see a lot of new entrants coming into the market. Invariably, they're the sort of younger, new generation of traders. I was that back in 2007. And we've seen exactly that this time around. Certainly, you know, companies within our industry have been struggling to keep up with with the sheer number of, of new new entrants and new traders. And that also changes the type of traders. Your younger person is looking for very high growth, higher risk compared to maybe some of your older, more experienced traders. And certainly volatility has been plentiful during this period. But I think it's also difficult because you have traders that are coming into the market that invariably have no experience. Um, so they're sort of learning on the job, so to speak, much like I was at the time. So people will mis make mistakes, you know, but at the same time, I think it's quite an exciting time. We've been seeing, of course, this idea of people taking their tips off of things like Reddit and the like, and it, whole, it, it really introduced a whole different dynamic to, to how people value stocks that is very different from the generation before them. I want to talk a bit more about how the pandemic has impacted trading and then also consumers, markets. But let's start with consumers. In terms of consumer behavior, what kind of changes have you seen? So I'm thinking, you know, high street, digitalization. And do you think these changes are permanent? Yeah, look, this is really a, a fast forwarding of trends that were already in play, right? We already knew that in terms of, say, retail sales, year on year, we were seeing more sales online and less sales in person. And that's really been fast forwarded over this period. Um, so certainly companies can't necessarily say that they weren't warned that they had to actually put significant resources into their digital side of the business. And certainly companies that haven't necessarily been that prepared will have suffered as a result. On the flip side of that, you've seen a number of companies that by and large would be associated with the high street and certainly thinking more so in the US. 
where they've gone from strength to strength. And they're from, certainly from a stock market perspective in a much better position now than they were pre-crisis. And that's really down to the strength of their digital offering. So how long is that going to last? That's a million dollar question, but I don't necessarily think we're going back to where we were before. We're now talking about a position, certainly here in the UK, where you got priority to be able to do online shopping for your groceries if you were of a certain age. Now, that specific age group were the type of people that probably prior to this crisis wouldn't have dreamt of doing their shopping online. Right. So you've almost introduced the, the one generation that everyone thought would never become that digital consumer into the idea of online shopping. So that certainly does benefit those companies that have a particularly strong online presence. I don't necessarily think that we're going back to where we were, but I do think that there is going to be some degree of normalization coming into play. And you talk about the high street. I think that's a particularly interesting one. Some of the, I would say, riskier stocks out there that people have been investing in have been associated with the high street. And just only last week, we were talking about Hammerson. They decided to take what was a flagship Debenham store and turn it into 300 flats. Now, unfortunately, that could be a model that other companies are going to follow in the future. The fear really is... What happens to the high street? The high street, certainly in the UK, was already suffering prior to this crisis. And what's actually going to happen to be able to make it a more attractive place to do business and to start a new business? Potentially, it's going to take something from the Chancellor. Are we going to see some sort of tax relief for those physical stores uh, to really encourage a strong high street? Or are we just going to let it continue to decline? So that's something that really has to be answered going forward because Certainly, there's been a significant amount of jobs and businesses that have really suffered at the hands of some of these tech giants. Certainly, that's all happened in the name of progress because people want things quickly. They want them delivered to, to their home, the next day delivery model, and they want it cheap. And it's perfect for that. But certainly, the high street does have a role to play. And so I think as we move out of this crisis, quite how much the government is going to try to hold the hand of such companies to be able to make sure that the high street is still thriving, it remains to be seen. From a trader's perspective, how have things changed? I mean, you look back to what trading used to be and you think of stock markets and people physically doing deals. And we'd already seen this big sort of digitalization in terms of, of that, that kind of activity anyway. I think it's interesting that people have grown so accustomed to operating online and, and not necessarily in person that they're getting a lot more used to the idea of being able to source all of their information in terms of trading and trading ideas just online, not necessarily from people physically. So certainly I think that as you move forward, you know, let's say Twitter and alike is going to play just as much, if not more, of a significant role in terms of exactly how people are going to be trading and what they're going to trade in going forward. Certainly, I think from a trader's perspective, volatility is something that invariably traders look for, investors, maybe not necessarily so much, um, but volatility there has been plenty of. And I don't necessarily think that's going away anytime soon, even when we seem to be moving out of this crisis and moving towards something that seems to be a little bit more predictable. And um, certainly, as we've seen recent weeks with the idea of a potential third wave coming in mainland Europe, predictability is usually in short supply. And there's always a number of risks to counteract a reason to, to be bullish for markets. 
There's been so many、uh, changes, as you say. We may well see some of the behaviors, some of the、um, for consumers and traders、um, become, if not permanent, then in your phrase, normalized <laughs> as we come out of this pandemic. So, what does this mean in terms of companies? Which companies are the winners, and which ones are the losers、um, from these changes? Yeah, I, I think that something that's Come up more recently is this idea of tech is the area to be in, and if you look at the types of companies that have done incredibly well throughout the last year, they've all been these sort of growth names and tech names and momentum stocks. And the one thing that they all have in common is the fact that we are looking at stocks that seemingly have no limit to the amount of profits that they can make in your mind. I would say that if you're looking for something that over, is going to be the next, let's say Tesla or the next Amazon or the next Google, you've got to look for the kind of stocks that someone can convince themselves is going to take over the world. And I would say that isn't necessarily the case for a number of the stocks that perhaps are going to actually outperform as we see the economic picture really pick up. You know, we what we would call a, a value stock. Now, those growth stocks or momentum stocks or tech stocks are likely to take a little bit of a breather, but there's a reason why they've done so well throughout this crisis. Number one is the move back towards that sort of digital digitalization trend, and that's not necessarily going to go away. But also, they're the kind of companies that, as they grow, can always quite easily、uh, transition to a, a different side business. Certainly, you look at the likes of. Google, they've always been able to find another area that they can grow into, or Amazon. There's always another area they can push into, and that's a reason to hold a stock like that because you know that with the kind of funds they have behind them, they'll be able to really dominate in any area that they get into. So I think that who has done really well, you've got names that a lot of us probably hadn't even heard of prior to this crisis, like Zoom. I'd never used Zoom in the past. And certainly, that's been a, a big outperformer. Although you have now got into a position where some people are saying they'd be happy if they never use Zoom or, or do a Zoom meet up with their friends ever again. So there's there's a little pinch of salt that comes with that. But I think if if we're looking forward in terms of who who are going to be kind of companies that really outperform going forward, I would say it's going to be companies that continue to facilitate that move towards technology. So I'm thinking more the, the kind of companies like Salesforce or CRM companies that essentially the more you invest in them, the more they can hopefully make you money as a business. And so a lot of companies are going to be looking towards the likes of Salesforce or likes of Microsoft and these kind of digital companies to really be investing their money and to be able to grow their digital footprint and be able to really thrive in a, in a post-pandemic world. Where granted, we're going to see some sort of normalisation, but we're not going back to where we were before. And people are very used to digital consumerism. That's only going to grow. And therefore, I think that whilst we could see a little breather in terms of these sort of big outperformers' performance on the markets, I think that those companies are going to continue to go from strength to strength as we move forward, just because of that continued digitalization trend. So, just quickly define a CRM, Josh. Yes.、Yeah, so, essentially, what you're looking at here is it's a company that. Will be able to store databases of your clients. They will store the the information of your clients. They give you a, a much better idea of 
exactly what your client might want to be served up in a given moment in time. So entire databases of client information could be stored on there. And and they're the kind of tools that would allow a business uh, the opportunity to be able to really know what a client wants and when and how to best service them. These companies, you know, certainly Salesforce, particularly good example, much like your Googles and your Amazons, they're always looking to buy up the next company that could do something very well in the area. So they continue to grow into so many different areas of, of really allowing you to, to operate online. And certainly Microsoft looking to potentially buy Discord as the, the sort of latest story. These big companies are going to continue to gobble up smaller companies and each of those small little arms get put onto the to, to the major wider company that allow them to offer so many different services to any prospective firm that wants to really operate in a digital world. They've got so many different tools that really I think they're going to almost become a must and they're going to become almost indispensable for those companies that rely on them in the first place and set up their infrastructure with them. Those deals uh, continue to grow and it's going to be quite difficult for companies to almost get out of that deal because of how reliant they become on them to be able to operate digitally. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I've got to ask you about the losers. Which companies are losers um, due to these trends? Well, look, it, we we obviously saw who were the lo- losers in the first place, right? We, we've seen huge selling in terms of stocks associated with, let's say, travel and things like that, that, that have been completely shut down. High street names that have been suffering. But I think w- what we're talking about in terms of losers over the say past year they might be the winners over the coming months and so it it really does highlight the sort of idea of knowing how to pick your time frames as an investor or a trader to know perhaps a company that in a year's time there's no way you would want to hold them that might be the best company to be holding right now and so as we move through this recovery phase and this so-called reflation trade I do think that we're likely to see outperformance in terms of those exact losers that you say, those companies that have been reliant on, say, the services sector being open, which hasn't, or airlines or travel stocks or banks or you name it. Those companies, I think, are likely to outperform. But ultimately, this has been very damaging to them. And let's say if we were taking, for instance, the airlines, we're now seeing that fight back We're now seeing people talking about what happens when these airlines are able to fly once again. You do have to question beyond trying to get back to where we were pre-crisis. Where's that room for upside? 
you've got companies that are potentially laden with debt or perhaps they've diluted their shares in the meanwhile. And so there's that idea of comparing the, in my words, sort of limitless growth potential of those momentum or tech stocks to those limited uh, stocks within the sort of value sphere where you're just hoping to try and get back to some semblance of where you were pre-crisis and even that sort of doing relatively well. So yeah, value stocks, I think for the near term, probably going to outperform. And certainly if we're looking at sort of relationships and correlations, I think one interesting one is going to be the US 10-year treasury yield. As we've seen that climbing over recent months, invariably that heralds a shift towards value stocks or pro-cyclical stocks and away from those growth names. And we have seen certainly the NASDAQ really underperforming because of that. That trend is likely to continue throughout the following months. And certainly it's going to be a bit of a, a bumpy road. But whenever we're seeing markets feeling optimistic about the, that recovery, um, you're likely to see that push back into value and some of those growth stocks maybe taking a little bit of a hit. But certainly if you look in terms of those yields over time, the trend is invariably towards the downside. And if you look at the relationship between value names and growth stocks, the trend is invariably towards those growth or momentum stocks. And so, again, it may just be the case of the next six months, maybe those value stocks outperform, but invariably those growth stocks will come back because of that limitless growth potential that they appear to have. Absolutely. Can I just um, ask you, when you talk about the reflation trade, just say a bit more about and what the indicators are. You mentioned treasuries, US government debt with uh, yields going up. That's uh, an anticipation that we're going to get some inflation. Um, so what else is sort of, you know, what, what makes it, you know, a reflation trade in markets? Yeah, certainly. You're going to be looking at some really key indicators that some of the sort of standard ones that you're going to be looking at are going to be things like GDP and the likes of inflation. Both of those expected to rise heavily. There's different ways that different central banks in particular are going to be looking at inflation. But the fact of the matter is that we're now seemingly poised for a potential surge in terms of prices. I do think from one perspective, you've seen such efforts from a central bank and government level and they're likely to really kick in. But also, you, you're looking at a, an economic outlook right now where, yes, it looks like everyone's been suffering, and some people certainly have from an economic perspective. But we've also seen huge piles of cash being built up on the sidelines. And so that growth in terms of savings that we have been seeing, I think that's likely to almost be unleashed as we see economic growth pick up and economies reopen. And so I think... Couple the idea that businesses have suffered really significant losses and they need to try and make some of that back up by maybe raising prices with the fact that you've got a lot of people that, quite frankly, haven't had anywhere to even spend money. They've had no holidays. They haven't been able to go out on nights out or go to see music or stay at an Airbnb or anything like that. And so I think that that sort of pressure between the two is really likely to push inflation. And therefore, you're going to start looking in terms of what the central bank outlook is going to look like going forward. And quite frankly, that's going to put pressure on those central banks. Are we going to see interest rates start to move towards the upside? Are we going to see quantitative easing pulled back? Those are the kind of things that people are going to be looking out for. 
But certainly what we're looking at on a, on a really basic level is economics growth and uh, and economies that have been essentially contracting and shrinking are finally being released and seeing a huge expansion. And certainly that's something that we've started to see in terms of the PMI numbers in Europe, the most notable of which came out of Germany with the manufacturing PMI of 66.6, which is quite remarkable. It's an all-time high. Certainly, we're starting to see the tentative signs of some of these uh, sort of secondary indicators uh, really showing that major outperformance, even though we've still got some significant questions ar- around about the reopening in mainland Europe and here in the UK. Yeah, that was a really striking purchase in managers index coming out of the PMI coming out of Germany, because anything over 50 is expansionary. So at that level, it was really expansionary. And I guess PMIs tend to be good indicators because they're picking up essentially what companies, you know, are, are looking at in terms of their orders. So, Josh, tech, momentum, growth stocks have been winning. You've described, um, you know, some of the issues around uh, what's happened to value stocks. Just kind of talk me through the risks involved if you're trying to play the cycle into value. Yeah, certainly. Like I said, sometimes it's a case of timing and, and, and knowing that you're to some extent, almost hopping onto a stone, which may not necessarily be particularly safe for a very long period of time, but may give you a a certain amount of of uplift. And that's certainly what it feels like for that shift into, into value. You're looking at something that over time has underperformed those growth names. And therefore, you're really looking to get on board this reflation or this, this sort of reopening trade. But also trying to gauge exactly when to hop off that and get back into some of those growth names. I think one of the the biggest risks is the fact that every time we've felt like we had an, a good idea of, of when things were going to normalize, it's always proven to be a lot longer and more drawn out than that. And so much like we've seen in terms of Germany and, and some mainland European countries talking about further lockdown measures or further restrictions, We're seeing the same thing here in the UK. We're seeing warnings of a third wave, even though over 50% of the UK has already been vaccinated or certainly had their first dose. And so there's always the risk that we could see another resurgence of COVID. We could see another strain coming through. We've got the Manaus one from Brazil, which appears to be able to overcome the vaccine. Now, that to some extent doesn't necessarily mean that it would kill as many people or that would hospitalize as many people. But even having a a huge number of people within the country that have COVID, even if it's not necessarily as dangerous, still does raise the possibility of further strain. So I don't necessarily think that the government is going to be happy to let it mutate once more. And so they're going to want to keep numbers relatively low. That means the potential for further lockdowns down the line and and further restrictions. If we did see that Brazilian variant in mainland Europe, then you're going to look at the potential for travel to be severely restricted. If you see travel restricted once again, what's that going to do in terms of, say, airline stocks and the like, which have already taken on significant debt just to try and get through this crisis? Maybe they're going to have to see a whole raft of cancellations. So you have to really look at each sector and their kind of risks that, that that they have within them. 
certainly I would say international airlines have a really significant risk um, because of the potential for future flare-ups in terms of COVID. So yes, we're likely to see a little bit of a bumpy road ahead, but I would say that not all value names are made equal and it's certainly worthwhile trying to really ascertain which sectors you think are probably higher and which are lower risk to the potential future lockdowns that could come. Finally, Josh, what advice would you give to people who are interested in the markets but don't know where to start when it comes to investing? This is certainly something that's really shown its its head recently with the fact that so many people have got into trading doesn't necessarily mean that they know what they're doing for the most part. And, you know, maybe they see the opportunity, much like I did in 2007, and don't necessarily have the time to be able to learn how to trade or learn how to do fundamental analysis or technical analysis or alike. And instead, it's more a case of someone told me to buy this and therefore I bought this. And, you know, certainly as a trader, you really do learn from your losses, you learn from your mistakes. And one of the things that I've always sort of been a firm believer of is that if I'm not making my own decisions, I can't really learn from it beyond the idea of just don't take advice from someone down the pub or someone on Zoom. And so, you know, do do your reading or try to find people online that maybe different Twitter accounts or or, or like people that really do have maybe a, a longer standing grasp on sort of economic trends and try to get a little bit more advice from from people like that rather than just your friends and maybe people on a WhatsApp group, which is certainly something that I think has shown a resurgence over the past year. Certainly it's something that I've seen with my friends. All of a sudden I've got a lot more friends of mine that are uh, interested in trading and uh, everyone's got a tip from a friend of what the next big growth name is going to be or alike. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a minefield out there. It's certainly trading and investing is, is not easy, but certainly make sure that, Whenever you're trading, you are able to look back at what you have done, why you made that decision, and what is going to make you better in the future at making those decisions. So don't listen to your friends' (laughs) tips in the pub. (laughs) So I've got to ask you, Josh, how did you do when you first started trading in 2007? Like I said, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a rocky road out there. I did incredibly well at first. And I was investing in small cap mining companies. Like I said, when you first start trading, all you want is incredible returns. And so I would say maybe the first year or so, it was just going really, really well. And then just turned sour. And as you find with a lot of AIM stocks and a lot of those really smaller companies, they're not necessarily as reliable when it comes to what they say they'll do, they actually do. So certainly I managed to take a decent amount of profit out of that anyway. So I certainly didn't lose any money, but I was very heavily up and uh, watched a lot of that turn to dust in front of my eyes as these companies faded away. So yeah, it was a rude awakening to what trading can be like. Well, as you say, you've got to learn from your mistakes. So thank you so much, Josh Mahoney from IG, for a fascinating conversation. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Square brought to you in partnership with IG. Founded nearly 50 years ago, IG is the world's number one provider of financial spread betting and contracts for difference, products that give ambitious retail traders instant access to a huge range of financial markets. There are more than 17,000 markets to trade on the IG platform, covering equities, stock indices, currencies and commodities. Many of these markets remain available outside of normal trading hours, with weekend trading on major currency pairs, stock indices and pre-market and after-hours trading on more than 70 popular US stocks like Tesla, Apple, Amazon and Netflix. To take a closer look at everything IG has to offer and to try its award-winning platform out for size, visit IG.com or just search IG.